Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Discover Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Emmett Hurley. I'm an ACSM and HIT Uni certified personal trainer with Discover Strength. Let's face it, busy people don't have time to waste on exercise that doesn't work. The Discover Strength Podcast focuses on bringing on the best minds in the field of evidence-based exercise, so you can look and feel your best in a fraction of the time. Thank you for joining us, and please enjoy this week's episode of the Discover Strength Podcast. Logan Emmett Hurley here today, joined by Taylor Melvin, one of our senior trainers at Discover Strength, and so excited to talk about this episode today with Dr. Sarah Oikawa out of McMaster University in the GSSI, uh, Gatorade Sports Science Institute located in Bradenton, Florida. Tay, I'd love to hear some of your things that you're just excited to hear from Dr. Oikawa today, uh, just about the step reduction model, things you think our clients will be interested in hearing. Yeah, thanks, Logan. Um, Yeah, I'm very excited to hear what Dr. Oikawa says. She does have some fascinating research around um, particularly step reduction, physical inactivity, and then how it affects our physiology. Um, And especially as somebody um, who works with a a lot of people over the age of 50 in a a physical fitness capacity, um, I'm just really excited to get more of a deep dive into the science and the mechanisms behind sarcopenia um, or age-related muscle loss. Yeah, great points, Tate. We're so excited to uh, to recap this with you at the end. And uh, please, everyone, uh, pay attention, take notes. There's so many golden nuggets in this episode from Dr. Oikawa, and this is really something that's applicable with all of us and what we've been dealing with, with some reductions in our, our steps over the course of the last year dealing with COVID-19. So, so excited to have you guys listen to this episode. Uh, please stick around to the end, and we look forward to recapping it with you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the Discover Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Emmett Hurley. So excited to be joined today by Dr. Sarah Oikawa, an R&D senior scientist at the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, the GSSI Satellite Lab at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida. Sarah earned her Honors Bachelor of Science, Master of Science, and her PhD all in kinesiology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. Sarah's worked with a wide variety of populations, healthy, young, and older adults, pregnancy, cardiovascular rehabilitation, and elite athletes, and physical activity models such as resistance exercise, inactivity, and high-intensity interval training in her research with a focus on muscle protein metabolism. Specifically, Sarah is interested in the impact of dietary protein quality on muscle protein synthesis through alterations in physical activity. In her role at GSSI, Sarah primarily supports research initiatives as well as provides support for protein-related claims and strategies. Sarah, we are just so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you again for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Logan. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Going to be one of our speakers at the Resistance Exercise Conference this year, which for our listeners is that conference we host every year. This year is going to be in Las Vegas. Sarah's going to be talking about protein there, but today we brought her on to talk specifically about sarcopenia in a paper she published. How long ago was that, Sarah? It was in 2019. 2019 on the impact of step production on muscle health and aging and protein and exercise as countermeasures. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Oikawa. Um, and please just introduce yourself, say hello. We'd love to, uh, to hear more from you. 
And also very excited to be talking about sarcopenia, which um, as, as you mentioned, I do work for the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, which our primary area of, of research is in athletes, but aging, sarcopenia and muscle loss is definitely um, one of my passions and continues to be uh, one of the areas that I like to keep up to date on d- despite my work in athletes now. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, I, I was fortunate enough to complete all of my schooling actually at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, um, before joining the crew at GSSI, which has been a fantastic experience. Awesome, awesome. And, and we'd love to talk about this topic with you today because sarcopenia, I think, is something that most of our clients, when they come in the door to discover strength, is something they're not really aware of, maybe peripherally. Um, if they're older, maybe their doctors have told them about it. But I'd love to just hear from you exactly what is sarcopenia, kind of the rate at which it happens. When can people expect to see this in their lives? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. I think the term sarcopenia, you know, when you're when you're talking about sarcopenia with people in the field, it's something that you, a term you toss around a lot. And it's like, exactly like you said, it's not a term that is familiar to, to the average person. And so essentially all sarcopenia is, is the progressive loss in muscle mass with age and sarcopenia onsets actually much earlier than we might expect. Um, in the absence of, of course, any countermeasures, it starts to begin around um, the third decade of life, but it's not measurable by, you know, DEXA or, um, any other type of body composition measure until about the fifth decade of life. So the onset's actually quite early, which is, is a little alarming, I suppose. Um, but that doesn't mean there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, so the rate of muscle mass loss is about one to 3% per year, but that's in, um, you know, kind of, of a linear fashion when we haven't had any periods that impact that loss. And so those losses of one to 3% are, are accelerated. Um, if you experience, as you mentioned, a period of disuse, so we would lose muscle a little bit faster. Um, and so that's something that I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about today, uh, just how we can kind of try and, and attenuate that decline. Um, so sarcopenia itself, again, is that loss of muscle mass and strength and, and why it occurs in aging, we're not a hundred percent certain it's impacted by numerous factors. So, um, change in innervation, loss of, um, muscle fibers, as well as changes in the kind of hormonal milieu changes in satellite cell content. Um, there are so many things that impact the loss of skeletal muscle and then things that are, are a little more peripheral to muscle. Of course, things like changes in, in vascular function impact nutrient availability to the muscle as well. Um, and so all of these things kind of act together as well as, you know, on top of any, any type of illness that um, a person might be experiencing to reduce muscle size, which then reduces muscle strength. And so in terms of, of the prevalence of sarcopenia, it does happen to everyone. It's not something that we can, you know, do everything right and avoid. We see that even in masters athletes um, that following, you know, around age 80, it's not that strict of a cutoff, but around 80 years of age, we do see that there just comes a point where losses in skeletal muscle just occur. Um, and there you can only do so much about it. Yeah, for sure. And you just said so many important things there. And I just kind of want to recap some of them. The first is, um, obviously around age 30, we see this decline, right? And I think the biggest takeaway here, and the thing that we really stress to our clients at discover strength is we might notice it's starting at 30 
it accelerates at 50, it's inevitable at 80, right? But that interim period there, that 50 years or so, we really can do something about it, right? And that's why I'm Absolutely. so excited to have you on today. And I think it's so important to, to really drive home this point that yes, maybe in our 80s, it's inevitable, right? Um, all those things that it will eventually happen to all of us, regardless of how hard uh, we may train, but there are ways to mitigate those things. And that's exactly why we wanted to bring you on and see how uh, pervasive, even just a small small reduction activity can really have a negative impact um, in the short and inevitably in the long term as well. Um, what else did I want to talk to you about there? Oh, so just as far as muscle loss, why is this such a bad thing? Talk to us a little bit about why losing muscle over time has such negative consequences on, on individuals. Yeah, so in the same way that sarcopenia is impacted by a lot of physiological functions and changes, um, those same kind of the loss of skeletal muscle doesn't mean that it just impacts skeletal muscle. Um, so for one, um, muscle is our largest site for glucose disposal. So when we're storing glucose or when we eat our food and we're storing that glucose as energy in our muscle, if we're losing muscle, it means that we're losing the storage space to, to put that glucose. And so, you know, as we get to talking a little more about the disuse literature and step reduction, what we've seen consistently is that when you experience a period of, of marked disuse or inactivity, we see an impairment in your ability to handle glucose. So um, spikes in insulin um, and, you know, negative outcomes in terms of what we use to, to quantify changes in insulin sensitivity. Um, we've shown in a step reduction paper done um, out of our lab at McMaster uh, with Mark von Allman and Chris McGlory that individuals who were pre-diabetic actually moved into um, diabetic status following two weeks of reduced physical activity. And so that's one of, of course, you know, a very metabolic consequence of muscle loss. And I think from, you know, an overall health perspective and something that might be important to your listeners is that what happens when we lose muscle loss is you lose muscle strength. And at the end of the day, having muscle is fantastic. The more muscle you have, especially as you age is great. Couldn't but agree more. But if you can't use that muscle, then, then what's, what's the use? So it's the losses in strength that I think are the greatest impact that occurs with the loss of muscle. Um, if you're not able to rise from a chair or from the toilet independently, that's when your quality of life really starts to decrease. And so it's preserving muscle to help to preserve that strength is really kind of the driving factor there. Yeah. And I think this is just such a, a pertinent topic right now as well, because of what we've all gone through with the last year with COVID. I mean, we've seen step reduction, uh, not in a scientific way, just in a general lifestyle um, for most individuals who are maybe not working um, at the office anymore. They're working from home. They're being sedentary. They're staying on the computers, playing video games, whatever those things might be. And I'd love to really dive into, because I think this is the meat of it here, how step reduction can affect people. Because we know a lot of our clients, like I said, come in, they've heard of the term sarcopenia. We know as you get older, you might lose some muscle. Obviously, we're going to talk about some ways to prevent that. But I'd love to talk about some of the findings from this study specifically about how just those short uh, intermediate bouts of step reduction can have really drastic impacts. One of the things I had here was that study from uh, Olson et al. were just simply three weeks of step reduction using things like escalators instead of walking, cars instead of walking. Uh, following 21 days, participants, like you said, decreased in insulin sensitivity, attenuation of uh, prosperandial lipid metabolism, and increased inner abdominal fat 
right? So just from three weeks, they saw all these things. So what are some of the other findings you guys have seen and, and things that our listeners can take away as far as when they go through those, I don't want to say lazier periods of life, but, you know, when times happen, when steps might be reduced just naturally. Yeah. So that's, yeah. In, an excellent point there too, Logan. And I think what I'd love to point out about that study that you mentioned um, by Olson and colleagues is that it was done in young, healthy people. And so, you know, that's well and good if, you know, those types of, of negative consequences occur in people that are in their 20s or 30s. But, you know, think about any of your clients that are in their 40s, 50s and 60s, the negative consequences accelerate even further. Um, and, you know, something that I, I think we might get into a little bit more as the, the podcast goes on and something that, um, you know, is really what drives my passion for this field is that we see that in people that are older is that that recovery so of of you know insulin handling or, or abdominal fat that that type of recovery can happen the younger that you are the 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 changes that you can see with training and rehabilitation are more robust and what we know is that as you age those types of rehabilitative activities aren't as, um, the response isn't as robust. And so we don't see a full recovery typically depending on your age. And so the concern there is that with each bout of inactivity that you have, you're not ever fully getting back to baseline. And so you're progressively declining and that's a major issue there. When yeah, we that's talk a, about, oh, sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, please. No, no, please. no, please. Well, I, I, you just brought up such an important point. And, and one of the questions I had for you was things that our clients can do during an injury, right? So those periods of disuse, uh, I was looking at the Sueta et al. study and the older individuals who were immobilized, like you said, for two weeks, followed up with intensive resistance training, and they couldn't gain back losses in their quadriceps, right? So um, I, I just think it drives home the importance of doing things like strength training, but the sooner we can do them and really have that foundation of strong muscles going into later in life, it's just so important to help mitigate those losses in strength and muscle mass. And, and it reminds me of a study, I'm not sure if you've seen the paper by uh, Omar Valdez and Luis Penillo, a uh, couple researchers from Colombia, I believe that we had on, um, oh, geez, that might be wrong. Uh, apologies, Omar and <laughs> Luis, if I'm getting your country of origin wrong, but essentially they looked at eccentric training um, during disuse uh, and, and found really incredible results as a way to, to mitigate the losses in the, um, the immobilized side. Have you seen any research in this? Or I know in, in your paper, you talk about some other strategies for, for mitigating loss during periods of disuse, other things that, that you really think people can use. I'd, I'd love to kind of talk about some of those ways to fight against and mitigate um, when you are during a period of, of step reduction or just general disuse. For sure. So I, I did have a look at that paper after you mentioned it to me, and there's been some other work on that kind of contralateral education piece and work out of uh, the University of Saskatchewan uh, with some um, great researchers there that did some up, similar kind of upper limb immobilization work. And so there, there is some evidence to show that there is a contralateral education effect or cross-education effect that occurs. Um, and so that, that's a strategy definitely that you could undertake. I think, you know, ultimately the the major source of, of kind of preserving muscle loss with disuse is going to be exercise. And I think that that's something that we need to drive home is that, you know, a lot of the work that we do in our lab at McMaster is looking at the effects of protein supplementation. And so, you know, protein is an anabolic stimulus, absolutely. But what we've shown time and time and again, not just in our lab, but of course, you know, across 
across the world is that you can't out nutrition muscle loss. And so if you're in a period of disuse, no amount of protein or supplements is, is going to save you from that muscle loss. And it comes down to exercise. And so you know, there's a story that we talk about and, you know, I've never been able to find it published, but something that we've talked about, you know, just in lab meetings and things like that is some of the bed rest studies to where you're, you're completely, you know, at an eight degree um, or six degree head tilt. Um, some of those bed rest muscle loss studies that we've seen, um, one of the, you know, kind of pervasive theories is that in one of the early studies, there was a foot rest at the end of the bed and, and participants at the end of however long the bed rest study was didn't lose any muscle, which is something that, you know, we would never expect to see, but it was because the participants were able to push against the, the foot rest and just that small bit of contraction was able to pres preserve muscle in that population. Um, and so I think that that is, you know, really speaks to the volume and to the efficacious nature of exercise and being able to to save muscle there. Um, some, some interesting work out of Doug Patton Jones lab in Texas has shown that um, sometimes that leucine, lotus leucine can counteract muscle loss. We still see muscle loss happening, but um, it, it does help to, to preserve some of that muscle loss. But I think an important, important message once again, uh, going back to that whole, um, you know, what is the point of having muscle if you can't use it piece is that it, it doesn't, reduce the loss in strength or any of the functional outcomes that that lab measured. And so, you know, great if we can keep that muscle again, great for, for having glucose, um, a glucose disposal site. But, you know, if you're still coming out of that period of bed rest, incredibly weak, you're still at greater risks for future falls and fractures and more hospitalizations if you're not recovering that strength loss. Yeah. And it's really interesting in your paper as well. And one of the things I was just wondering, I don't know if there's been any research in this direction, but it seemed like simply adding steps when people were in periods of bed rest didn't really mitigate any of that strength loss. But some of those studies where they were doing some kind of resistance training, like you said, even just using the, the foot rest to press against had that powerful, um, effect of, of conserving at least some level of muscle mass. So is there any research in the field or, or do you think it would even be a viable option to look at something where people are doing bed rest for an extended period and training in some some capacity as opposed to simply a step reduction model where, well, they're losing their steps, so they're losing strength. Well, if they added those steps in bed, is that really going to make the difference or is it they're step reducing, so they're also reducing their resistance training, their exercise, other things that they're doing in general. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So, uh, you know, once again, out of um, Doug's lab, the, the author is um, Emily Aronson Lance. She actually did the study where they added steps back into the bed rest participants and saw that it wasn't protective um, in, in you know, reducing muscle loss and some of the other outcomes they had there. And so we know that those few steps a day are definitely beneficial than doing nothing, but they're not enough to counteract um, how severe bed rest is. And so I think going back to what you were saying about, you know, how important the step reduction model is, is it's a much more benign version of, of bed rest, but it's something that we might experience at a greater frequency, um, especially as you get older and, you know, you catch a, a bad bout of a flu or you have an injury and you're just much less active. That's when we're seeing the step reduction model come into play. And so kind of going back to your original question, one of our, our early models where we use step reduction we had older participants come in and do unilateral resistance exercise to look at the effects of step reduction. But if you do exercise two times a week, 
or sorry, three times a week over the course of, of two weeks, so six sessions in total, it was protective in, in, in um, kind of mitigating some of the negative consequences of step reduction that we saw with the leg that didn't exercise. So we know that exercise can be protective and is effective when you are in a period of step reduction. But, you know, one of the major criticisms we got about that that study was that, you know, someone that's in a period of step reduction, for example, if they were ill, isn't able to exercise. And so I think that's where some, um, some of the work as I, you know, move into my run on sentence here, some of the work um, out of Luke Van Loon's lab, where they've used neuromuscular electrical stimulation during bed rest Mm -hmm. has been shown to preserve some of that muscle as well. So that might be a much more applicable model in hospital or in severe illness when we're seeing individuals that can't actually exercise. So I, I may be just extrapolating here a little bit, but but kind of the, the big takeaway that I took from this paper and just some of the other research surrounding it as I was looking through it, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is just simply the importance of activity, right? So we never tell people at Discover Strength that they shouldn't be active, but we get this question about steps a lot, and people are so obsessed with their step counters, Apple Watches, you know, whatever the activity tracker might be. And, and what I'm seeing from this paper, and please tell me if I'm off base here, but it seems like um, the step reduction is not necessarily the most influential piece. It's just not becoming active, not doing anything, right? And, you know, the thing we preach at Discover Strength, obviously, is resistance training. And what we notice time and time again with people who come in who may be pretty inactive is that the activity as the the strength increases, they correspond together, right? They're completely correlated. So as you get stronger, you become more active, right? And it would just make sense that as you become weaker, you become less active. So it seems like, and again, maybe I'm extrapolating a little bit here that that strength piece is just so foundational and important um, because as you get stronger, those steps are gonna increase anyways. Am I off base there? Or is that a a fair takeaway from this, this study? Yeah, it, it's a fair takeaway. I, I don't know if as you get stronger, it correlates with more exercise per se. I mean, obviously to get stronger, you have to do more steps to, to do that exercise. I think that, um, you know, the problem with with the boom in pedometers and, and, you know, Fitbits and Apple Watches and all that is that, you know, it provides a step count and individuals will get so hung up on achieving, you know, say 10,000 steps per day, but that number is, is incredibly arbitrary. Um, it's been shown time and time again that, you know, that number was pulled from incorporating how many steps you might get in um, the physical activity guidelines, including, you know, habitual steps per day. And so it's not necessarily that the all end all, if you achieve that steps per day, you're going to be, you know, golden. Um, I think when, you know, going back to what you were saying about resistance training is that the benefits of, of exercise, resistance training in particular, are just so, um, they happen on such a large level. It's not just at the level of the muscle, it's, you know, improving vascular function, it can improve cognition. Um, there's the social aspect to exercising, which is, you know, as we age, we know is incredibly important. Um, and, you know, near and dear to my heart is the fact that, you know, as we do resistance training, um, we're increasing, you know, to some level muscular power. And when we move into aging, power is so vital. You know, if you trip on, on a rug, you need to be able to generate force quickly to bring your leg forward so that you don't fall because that fall could, you know, cause a hip fracture and then you're immobile for however, however long until you recover. And so strength training with aging, you know, they really just should go hand in hand. And and the, the sooner that you can get involved in kind of 
all around a good exercise program, but involving resistance training in, into your exercise routine, you know, the longer you're going to be able to maintain that strength as you move into aging. Of course, you can gain strength as you're older, but, you know, starting higher is probably for, for the best in terms of what we know right now. Yeah. And that flows so perfectly into this next question, which it just deals with strategies to mitigate decline from disuse. So um, we've already talked about a few of these, but I'd love you to just kind of drive the, the point home here a little bit as far as resistance training and protein supplementation and how people can avoid periods of total disuse. Like if you can't train something um, because it's immobilized, train something else, right? Um, what are, are some recommendations based out of your labs and the research that you've seen as far as uh, resistance training? Training frequency and recommendations, and then sort of general protein supplementation recommendations. Yeah. So for resistance training recommendations, I mean, I mentioned already that study where we had a two week period of disuse and the participants trained three times per week um, and their training was really, really short. Um, and the reason that we do that is because, you know, we were only look, interested in looking at the lower limbs. Of course, if, if you're in a period of disuse, it's very different than a period of bed rest because your upper body can still function normally, but it's your lower body that's experiencing that lack of activity. And so, um, you know, their, their resistance exercise was, you know, three sets, they were on the leg press and the leg extension, they were in and out in about 15 to 20 minutes. And so it doesn't take very much for you to be able to uh, maintain some of that muscle mass and strength when you are in a period of, of for example, step reduction. So um, very different, of course, than if you're bedridden, because of course, there would be a reason why you're bedridden. In terms of nutritional strategies, as I mentioned, you, you just can't out nutrition muscle loss. It's just, it's not going to happen, unfortunately. Um, but some of the research that we've shown to be effective is, as I mentioned, there's some evidence for low dose leucine. So leucine is an essential amino acid. Um, and it's been shown to independently stimulate the muscle building processes that occur when we, when we need to increase muscle protein synthesis. So um, part of, of, you know, in, incorporating more protein to your diet is incorporating high quality protein, which typically means that it has a higher amount of total leucine. Um, so some examples of high quality proteins are animal based proteins. So any kind of animal um, proteins, specifically like meats, but also things like dairy proteins or egg protein as well are all considered to be high quality. So making sure that you're getting adequate protein during a period of disuse is, is um, of utmost importance in helping to at least try to attenuate some of that loss, adequate protein being larger doses of protein and then spread out kind of three to four hours throughout the day. So roughly, um, you know, depending on your age, somewhere between um, 0.25 and 0.4 grams per kilogram, you can calculate that out. And then that's the dose that you would be looking to have every time you have a meal. Because um, what we typically know is that in at breakfast time, most people don't eat very much protein, but you have to remember that you've just woken up. So you've been, you know, lying down without any exercise, without any protein ingestion for, you know, eight to however many hours you sleep. And then you wake up again, and your first meal doesn't include any protein. So trying to incorporate protein evenly throughout the days is, is a big one that we focus on. And then there are, of course, some other anabolic supplements that we might recommend. So creatine supplementation has been very, um, you know, shown time and time again to help improve muscle mass um, gains and strength gains with training. And so this might be something that you do during the rehabilitative phase following a disuse event. 
And then some more recent work out of our lab um, from Dr. Chris McGlory has shown that at least in younger women consuming a fish oil supplement, so omega-3s, um, prior to a disuse event. So this might be in the case um, if you knew you were having an elective surgery where you were going to be in a period of disuse, it he showed that it attenuated the loss of muscle mass in young women when they were immobilized. So those are some things that we might want to consider. Um, of course, if you know you're going to have a disuse event, it's much easier to plan, but it, it's never, um, you know, the benefits official, I guess, as an example, are so obvious that, I mean, it's never a bad time to start you know, considering those types of, of options. Yeah. And so helpful and, and really a lot of stuff that we kind of drive home to our clients on a regular basis. Anyways, um, there's not a lot of supplementation that we recommend because I'm sure, as you know, a lot of stuff has not been studied appropriately. Um, but leucine, you know, things like whey protein or, or from animal sources, creatine, omega threes is a, a newer one for me that I've found through reading your research. I, I take some omega threes anyways, but it wasn't with the thought of preserving muscle mass, but that's, that's really interesting to know. I'd, I'd love to just kind of wrap this up with, with some general, um, I guess, recommendations that you would say for the person in your life, right? We get a lot of, of clients anywhere from the 30 to 75 and up age range at Discover Strength and really everywhere in between. And I just got a few hypotheticals here. Um, I, I imagine that the recommendations are going to be pretty similar, but I'd love to hear just recommendations for these people of how to maximize their their strength and and potentially, obviously, doing things besides, Hey, don't get injured and fall and break your hip. Um, you know, what are the best things you can do to, to battle against sarcopenia, um, and muscle loss, uh, as you age. So let's just say, for example, a 50 year old, uh, relatively inactive, maybe 50 pounds overweight, what should this person be doing to improve their health and longevity? Some just general recommendations for someone. Yeah. So, I mean, starting with increasing physical activity is obviously the, uh, the most important thing that they can be doing. Um, you know, I think at, at 50 years of age, despite that being when we can measure sarcopenia, um, you know, I'd like to think that you're still very relatively young at the age of 50, but uh, I think at that point, your response to exercise is, I mean, at any point of your life, your, your response to exercise will still be robust if you're going from zero. I think that there's so many benefits that exercise can infer that, are going to affect you in other ways. Um, and in terms of the piece about, you know, them being slightly overweight, this is something that, you know, I kind of struggle with from the research perspective, of course, you know, maintaining a healthy body mass is, is really important, but something that I've also studied, you know, in my previous life was some weight loss strategies. And so losing weight is, is great in terms of, we know that, you know, being a healthy body mass is important for health and longevity, but what typically happens with, with weight loss programs is we also lose muscle mass. It's just being in an energy deficit. It's very hard to, um, attenuate those losses. Um, we do have some evidence from our lab and in young people that's shown you are able to do so, but at a very regimented and a very strict exercise protocol. So I think if this person was looking to lose some weight, um, you know, the important piece there, you know, to, preach to the choir is, is to do resistance exercise. So you want to try and increase muscle mass or at least not lose muscle mass as you're losing weight. And that's really going to benefit you in the long term. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Just going a little older in the opposite direction there. Let's say it's a 65 year old recent retiree, some lingering issues, wants to play golf, but overall pretty inactive. 
Um, I imagine that the recommendations are going to be pretty similar, but I just kind of want to drive home that point of, of everything you've been talking about today. What, what sort of recommendations would you make for somebody who maybe is at a higher risk of potential disuse uh, over time? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, similarly to the to the other individual that we spoke about, it's it's increasing physical activity and maybe of more importance in this person is to maybe start to monitor monitor the protein intake as well. So with an increasing age, we see that there's reductions in appetite, um, as well as um, at that point to kind of less um, adoption of maybe changes to diet, but at that point, maybe adopting more um, trying to more evenly space your proteins that you're getting an adequate dose at every meal um, and starting to maybe look at um, some of the other supplements that we talked about to try and mitigate muscle loss. Um, You know, I think with someone who is relatively inactive into their 60s, increasing physical activity is going to be great. Um, But of course, like we're not asking them to hit the gym five times a week. I think at that point when, when you're inactive, doing something is just better than, than doing nothing at all. And so I think for, for that person as well, if they did have some lingering injuries, it, it's important to kind of adopt a type of change in, in health that is going to be something that you can maintain. Um, so if you're, you know, just going to start going on more walks, I know we already talked about how step counts don't necessarily tell a whole story, but if you're going from doing 2000 steps a day to doing 6,000, I mean, that's, that's still something. Yeah, for sure. And and last one here, because I don't want our, our clients who are maybe a little bit younger to feel left out. Say it's a 28-year-old recently started a new career working from home. So someone who's standing less and walking less, obviously huge reduction in their, their step count. What are some long-term ramifications from these short-term changes that this person might see over time? And maybe just kind of a... a friendly warning uh, of habits that they should maybe be trying to break. Yeah. And I think the, the breaking of habits piece is so important, Logan. It's that, you know, if you think, you know, we mentioned already that when you're young, you can recover from these periods of de- disuse pretty quickly. And also I'll probably back to hundred percent, depending on the type of rehab uh, that you're participating in. And so that's all well and good when you're young, but it's, it's about breaking that habit, right? Cause if you treat every one of those disuse events, like, Oh, I'm young, I'll rebound and, and it'll be fine. You know, as you age, your rebound is, is going to be less and less and less, and you're going to have to work harder every time you want to recuperate. And so I think it's, it's, being conscious of the fact that even when you're young and um, so you mentioned that study earlier, that was, I think the reason I love the Olson study is because it's something that you could very easily do. Just stop walking to work, stop taking the stairs, like only just do things that make your life a little easier. And these mechanisms we have in place to reduce our physical activity. Um, it's, it's so poignant. And I think one of the studies that I really love is um a study that was also done around the same time that had individuals in one day reduce their daily step count to 300 steps per day. And these were in young individuals. And we saw very similar outcomes, of course, to a lesser extent, but impairments in glucose handling as well, just in in one day of reducing daily steps. And we've all had that day where we've been a massive couch potato, but I think just to see in quantitative terms, how much of an impact that has on our metabolism is, is, you know, a little bit shocking. And I think it's an important message to get across that, you know, we're all welcome to have those terrible days where we do nothing, but, you know, trying to do nothing, I think is, is the biggest take home for this person is that, you know, try to have less and less of those days where you do nothing. 
Yeah. And, and I think the big takeaway from this, this whole podcast could really be for our listeners is that your choices compound interest, right? So if we're making the right choices, um, even if it's tougher in the short term, you know, they're going to pay dividends in the long run. And if you are doing those things, which we all, let's be honest, have been doing over the course of the last year, because we've had minimal options otherwise, um, those things are going to compound as well. Um, you know, I, I think some of the other big takeaways that I, I hope our listeners get from this is obviously if you're younger, you have the opportunity to bounce back, but there's still short-term ramifications of that stuff. And as we age, it's obviously significantly harder um, to bounce back from these disuse periods, uh, step reduction periods. And we really need to fight actively against this thing, which is inevitable, which is sarcopenia, right? But if we can make it to 80 before we start this process, I think we're all going to be significantly better off. So, you know, the things I've taken away here, strength train, um, try to be as active as you possibly can when you have the opportunities to do so. If you do go through those periods of step reduction, it's not the end of the world. We just have to fight against those periods of disuse and, you know, take the supplementation that's actually been proven to work, you know, take your protein throughout the course of the day. Leucine is going to help with muscle protein synthesis, creatine to help build muscle, omega-3s to preserve it. Um, you know, ask your trainer about some of these supplements that, that we can potentially, you know, set you up, put you in the right direction. Um, any other big takeaways from these studies or, or really important take-home messages for, for people, Dr. Oikawa, that you think um, are just super important to, uh, to take home with them today? Yeah, I think um, I'll make two points here. So the first being that these studies are, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of them and it's an area that's very close to my heart, but I think one of the, the pieces of feedback we get the most and something I really want to get across to your listeners is that these, the participants that do these studies are what we call, you know, the golden older people. So, you know, they're, they're 60 to 80 years old, but these, in order to participate because there are such, um, strong influences on muscle protein synthesis, which is what we measure in these studies is these individuals have to be free of, of the majority of chronic conditions. So we um, typically would prefer if these participants aren't on any medications with the exception of some cholesterol lowering medications or maybe blood pressure lowering medications, but we, they can't have any chronic conditions, which we realize is not typical of someone in that age range. So, you know, reading these studies or listening to this podcast, I hope that you take away that, you know, even if you are someone that does have a chronic condition, these are still things that are applicable to you, but maybe these periods of disuse might have a greater impact on you than the people that were in this study. And so that rehabilitation piece is even more crucial and trying to mitigate disuse periods is even more crucial when you do have a chronic condition. Um, and then my last piece, which we didn't really touch on today, but was part of these studies as we were going through them, um, when we talk about the impact of protein supplementation is the impact of protein quality. Um, so, you know, vegetable sources of protein are typically of lower quality than animal-based sources. And so it's totally fine. You may have seen the movie yet or the documentary Game Changers. It's totally fine to have vegetable-based sources of protein, but making sure that you're matching them maybe for leucine, which means you may need to have a greater dose of a vegetable-based source of protein um, if, if that's the route you're going. So making sure you understand what you're putting into your body, I think, is also a key thing if we're going to approach step reduction from a nutrition perspective. Yeah, such a such a helpful point. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because a lot of clients, whether it's Game Changers or something else, are definitely impacted by a lot of the documentaries that are out there. And we have people asking us all the time about dietary recommendations, which we never really give out besides just general protein recommendations and caloric restriction. 
Um, but we definitely have had those conversations with people. And that's something I'll definitely be using going forward is, you know, hey, if you want to go the vegan route, if you want to try to cut out some of the animal proteins in your life, maybe leucine supplementation um, would be a great alternative to, to make sure you're maximizing uh, MPS through those, the, those, uh, supplements. So awesome to just have you on here today, Dr. Oikawa. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and we're so excited to see you in October at the resistance exercise conference. Everyone, thank you so much for listening today. Please like, and subscribe to the podcast. And, uh, we look forward to sharing this episode with you and all future episodes. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone for sticking around after this awesome episode with Dr. Sarah Oikawa. I'm Logan Emmett Hurley again, joined once again by Taylor Melvin, one of our senior trainers at our Plymouth location at Discover Strength. Tay, so many golden nuggets in this episode. Some big things that I just wanted to discuss with you today. Just sarcopenia in general. I thought she did such a phenomenal job of explaining age-related muscle loss and how it affects us from our third decade all the way up to our eighth decade, right? And you know, there's a lot of things that we can do in the interim there to really try to fight some uh, some sarcopenia and age-related muscle loss. Other big takeaways you had from this episode, things you want to discuss today? Yes, for sure. Um, so the results from her studies on um, the impact of step reduction that she cited are, are pretty crazy um, and unfortunate. Just the fact that with a mere reduction in steps, you can have such a large cascade of negative consequences um, in as little as a few weeks, like two to three weeks. Forget um, a few weeks. Remember, she was talking about one of them was simply from 24 hours, how those markers can can decrease and, and become negative. So just incredible how such a short period of, of rest like that can really have negative consequences over the long term. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. And like that study where I think it was in a matter of two weeks, um, there was participants moved from a pre-diabetic to a diabetic status from, from just inactivity. Um, and then of course, all those findings from the Olson studies, um, even in young and healthy people who experienced some pretty detrimental effects from, from reduced step reduction. Yeah. Um, just on, on that point, before you continue, cause I want to hear the rest of this. I think it's just so important to, to drive home to our clients and our listeners as well. You know, one of the things she said over and over again is especially with younger populations, you do have the opportunity to bounce back from a period of step reduction, even bed rest when you're younger, but it can set you up for long-term disadvantages, right? If you continue to go through these bouts of low activity and start to create those negative habits, they can have long-term ramifications. And then on the flip side of that, for older clients or older individuals, those things can be extremely detrimental, right? You might not be able to bounce back in your 50s the way you did in your 20s. So, so important to create that foundation of resistance training, doing something like Discover Strength on a regular basis for if you do ever experience those bouts of inactivity. But please continue. Right. So I've unfortunately seen this happen in clients over the years um, who are in their golden years, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s um, and 80s, where, um, you know, they get an injury or have surgery or, or have some sort of event of disuse. And then exercise and physical rehab was either not prescribed um, or prioritized um, or just not adhered to. And then really seeing a massive setback in the person's strength and functional ability. So it then turns into just a long road to recovery just to get back to baseline. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think as as trainers, we've all had those experiences where we've dealt with clients who've who maybe had some sort of issues issue, you know, we get a lot of clients who come to us who have maybe been recreational athletes for a long time and are getting things like hip replacements, knee replacements. And obviously, the the better we can prepare them for those uh, periods of disuse, um, you, you know, the better off they're going to be in the long term. This actually makes me think of a, a client as well that I've been working with recently. And she had, I would say, the advantage of actually getting her hip replacement put off by another month and a half, because it was during COVID when elective procedures were were really hard to come by. And post-surgery, she has been so thankful and just thanks me every day, because I, I tried to paint it as a positive for her, that we had those extra six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was, to really create the foundation um, of strength around her hip musculature, because um, she's come back amazingly. I mean, granted, this was an outpatient procedure. It wasn't a full hip replacement, but her doctors have just been stunned at how fast she's been able to recover simply because she had that foundation there. And she was training with me literally three days after she had her hip replacement done. So really incredible. What's something um, simple, like, you know, strength training twice a week for 30 minutes for people who feel like they don't even have enough time in their week uh, can really offer you in the long term as far as benefits. Um, but something else I wanted to talk to you about is just some of the, the strategies that people can use. And I loved how Dr. Oikawa said, you know, you can't out nutrition uh, a poor exercise regimen. I think that's such an important point for our clients to hear because um, we're always talking about protein supplementation to maintain muscle mass, to increase muscle mass. But if you're not doing the other things, right, the strength training seems to be the key stimulus. The nutrition is helpful on top of that. What has been your experience with just some supplementation. Again, we don't want to give super general recommendations here, um, but just things you've seen, whether it's whey protein supplementation. Um, I'm a big fan of leucine personally. I not heard that omega-3 thing like she talked about. Other experience with uh, supplementation in regards to resistance training and how it can help attenuate uh, some muscle loss and disuse. Right. Yeah, I was surprised to hear about the omega-3 um, with the fish oil um, supplementation as well. That was fascinating. Um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the protein research, um, when it comes to uh, protein supplementation, we've found that it's 0.7 to 1 gram of protein per pound of body weight is, is kind of the sweet spot for um, total protein intake per day to help in terms of muscle um, mass gain, but also to maintain your muscle mass with age. Um, and I think she mentioned this, but it gets more and more important to supplement with that protein. As you get older, um, we tend to have a loss of appetite with, uh, age and then also have, um, lower absorption rates, things like that. So again, it makes it even more important to help supplement with protein. Um, but at the end of the day, it is all about that exercise and about uh, specifically resistance exercise to help mitigate any sort of uh, loss um, and reduce the level of atrophy of the muscle over time. For sure. Such great points. And something I know you've experienced too, when we've done things like our body comp challenge in the past, even with our project discover we're doing now, our older clients definitely tend to struggle a little bit more with getting all that protein in. And just for our clients that were listening, uh, Dr. Oikawa gave those uh, recommendations in kilograms, right? So we're saying the same thing. She was just saying 0.25 to 0.4, whatever the recommendations were, but it's based off uh, kilograms compared to uh, pounds. So that 0.7 to 1 to 1.2 is, is really the general recommendation per pound of body weight. 
Tay, just so many valuable things in this episode. I hope our listeners and clients go back and and really jot down some notes, take away some important uh, takeaways here. I think one of the other interesting things I really found was, you know, starting at age 50, that that decline is about one to 3% a year, which I've not heard before. Most of the time we say about 0.5 to 1.5% uh, percent per year of muscle loss. So according to Dr. Oikawa, you know, you're looking at 10 to 30% in decline starting after age age 50. So obviously there's so many things we can do to attenuate this, um, to fight against it. Nutrition is important. Um, you know, supplements like leucine whey. if you've got a, uh, a vegetarian based diet, finding those higher quality protein sources, um, to really make sure you're getting that, uh, muscle protein synthesis is so important. Anything else that's super important that you feel like we missed that you want to touch on, or, or did we do a good job there of covering all the topics? No, I thought that was great. Um, I think too, just uh, one note on one of her studies around um, muscle disuse. I think it was, they were in a hospital setting and couldn't, they were immobilized in a certain limb. Um, I just thought her research was, this is again, the good news, right? It's the bad news uh, earlier about how detrimental it can be to be inactive. But um, the good news is you can help reverse that or mitigate the level of atrophy just in as little as two weeks, right? At the end with what, three 15 minute workouts per week or a total of six sessions. I mean, that's a very doable um, thing to do to help with reducing level of atrophy of the muscle um, or sarcopenia. So, I mean, at the end of the day, right? Muscle is just an incredibly valuable tissue um, that's very necessary for our health and functional well being. And it just goes back to the old, you know, use it or lose it adage, right? Um, that's extremely applicable here. You got to keep moving. Um, if you're immobilized, move what you can. Um, and then, of course, resistance training is going to be the most uh, impactful for you in the long term. Such great points and such a wonderful way to end. The only thing I want to say based on all that immobilization research you just talked about is for all of our clients that are interested in that contralateral training, please check out our recent episode with Omar Valdez and Luis Penillo, uh, where we talked about contralateral effects in strength training. Really interesting episode and something that I'm sure you guys will really enjoy. And please, everyone, like and subscribe to the podcast. Tay, thank you so much for showing up today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, schedule. And uh, everyone, we look forward to seeing you again on a future episode soon. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We hope you continue to tune in to catch up on the most important information in the field of evidence-based exercise. If you love the Discover Strength podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to me at logan at discoverstrength.com for comments or guest ideas. Please also like and subscribe on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Help us spread the word of smart, efficient training, and we'll continue to help you look and feel your best in a fraction of the time.